Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's season four, episode seven, and my guest is my Blue Flute alum and award winning composer, Nina Shaker. Nina is a composer who explores the intersection of identity, vulnerability, love and laughter to create bold and intensely personal works. The New York Times describes her music as tart and compelling, and the Washington Post says vivid, and surprises and delights aplenty, says the LA Times. Her music has been commissioned and performed by leading artists, including LA Philharmonic, Albany Symphony, LA Chamber Orchestra, Civic Orchestra of Chicago, International Contemporary Ensemble, the list goes on. Aside from composing, Nina is a very versatile performing artist. She's a flutist, a pianist, and a saxophonist. She's pursuing her PhD in music composition at Princeton University. She previously completed composition graduate studies at USC and undergraduate studies at the University of Michigan, earning dual degrees in music composition and chemical engineering. She was recently appointed as the 2021 through 2023 composer in residence for young concert artists. She is a 2022 and 2023 Civitella Ranieri Foundation Music Fellow. An active educator, Nina is currently a composer teaching artist fellow for the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra and is on faculty at the Idlewild Arts Academy and Brightwork New Music's Project Beacon Initiative. One name note, Nina spells her name S-H-E-K-H-A-R and pronounces it like shaker, like a pepper shaker. So please note that her last name is spelled with two H's. So I guess I can say, Nina Shaker, welcome to Porter Flute Pod. I'm so excited to be here. What were the years we were together? Ooh, I think 2013 to 2017. Mm-hmm. And I know you as a double major. Actually, you were doing three things. Can you speak to that for a moment? <laughs> Yeah, I was doing, uh, so my technical degrees were were composition and chemical engineering, but I was also in Professor Porter's flute studio, which was amazing. Um, and I learned so much from you. And I, I, I always think about just how being a performer has really influenced the way I think about composition and you know, how we even communicate to performers, not just like when working with them, but also like in our score and the notation and, um, and even just like the physicality of performance and understanding how an instrument feels just in the body and being held. And, um, I 
really just enjoyed my time at Michigan so much. And a big part of that was due to you. Thank you so much. I, it was a mutual admiration society every single week and then every other week. And I have to speak to the junior and senior year of your bachelor of music degree, because you had a lesson every other week in which you would come completely prepared. Like I've never seen in any flutist, except when they're composers (laughs) or they're with they're they're those doublers. You have too much to do to not be organized. And what I was so impressed by was that you loved the piccolo. You fell in love with the piccolo, didn't you? You always actually you <laughs> always did. love the piccolo. I did. <laughs> I feel like the piccolo gets such a bad rap, but I feel like it's such an expressive instrument. I mean, I think when it's played well, <laughs> it's an expressive instrument. And you know, like the low end on a piccolo is like, I think so gorgeous. Um, and a lot of composers don't even realize just everybody associates piccolos and flutes in general with birds. And like, that's the end of their <laughs> thinking. And I think that, I mean, obviously the flute is such an expressive instrument, but I think the piccolo too always gets this bad rap and everybody associates it with Sousa. <laughs> there's so much more that it can do. You liked Mike Mower's flute. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. You liked Mike Mower's piccolo sonata, didn't you? Yeah, I did. That high C sharp. <laughs> that was so fun. <laughs> Have you written as high C sharp on the piccolo in some of your music? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Everybody would, I would get canceled. <laughs> so okay. Closer. So the answer is no. No. <laughs> I Only on a piccolo piece, maybe, would you do it? I might do it. You you know, if I, especially if it was commissioned by somebody who I like, I know could really go for it, then I might throw one in. (laughs) In honor of Mike Mower. Right. His itchy fingers (laughs) publication. I always love his publishing company name. Yeah. What's your publishing company name? Do you have a publishing company name? Mine is just Nina Shaker music. <laughs> I didn't want to pick something that I would regret later on. So I went very safe in my name. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> my last name in the instrument. They probably can't Perfect. forget that. Yeah. Right. junior year, you came in and you said, you sat on the couch and you said, Professor Porter, I I won an award. You won the BMI award and you were like the youngest composer and you were not even graduated yet. And I, it was a big deal. And from right. And then from there, you, you started, you started writing for the Jack Quartet. I think that was one of your big commissions to start. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. My first 
piece actually that I wrote at Michigan, um, I guess a freshman, it was like the very first thing I ever did, um, was the string quartet. And I remember like I was having such a hard time finding performers because I just didn't really know anybody. And it's really hard, especially as a wind player to like meet string players. Um, in university, uh, especially because I, I didn't really have as much interaction with them as I did with wind players. And then I remember there was a reading my sophomore year where Jack Quartet came in and then they ended up recording my piece. And then after I won um, that award and then I also won, I had a, I was kind of like applying to a lot of things and then I had won some other things. and. Um, another one that I had won was with this other group called Ethel. Um, and then they performed it at a festival and then they actually ended up playing it at the Met Museum like six or seven times. Um, and it was, I always felt really, I actually, it made me really like anxious because it was like the first piece that I had ever written. And I was like, why are you playing this piece? I can write you something new that's better um but they were all like very kind and um so lovely to work with and I was just really lucky to have all of these opportunities kind of snowball through me really early on as your professor I heard your imposter syndrome <laughs> and do you want to speak to it yeah did, did I, feel- I I felt so much imposter syndrome I think when I was at Michigan I mean even just from me coming into the university like I mean you had a huge part of me even coming into the university and I remember that for me (laughs) I fought for you Nina oh my god I guess we don't need to dredge up that story so let's just move forward and we got you in and then, and, and it wasn't my holdup. And then what happened? You started getting things and you were, you, you said, how did I do this? I remember you would say this to me. I felt so kind of honored that you would, you know, talk about this, but I really think it's important for young composers to, to hear you. Yeah, I, I really felt a lot of imposter syndrome. I think also partly because I was a double major, you know, I wasn't even like, one of those students that was only doing composition. Um, I had like this whole other degree and I feel like, I felt like there were so many expectations for me to just kind of stop and then go into engineering afterwards as a career because I would have been like the easy financial path. Um, oh my gosh. And so, yeah, so I, I felt like so much imposter syndrome during my undergrad, I think, cause I don't know if people always expected me to like have a career in in music after my undergrad. And, um, you know, I was really grateful for our lessons because it gave me a time to talk about these things and, you know, kind of release a lot of (laughs) tension through the flute. Um, And it was just such a, it's just so funny to me looking back now, like where I am right now, career-wise and remembering what it felt like when I was, I don't know, 19 years old um, and not really sure what the future would hold for me and if I would ever be able to, you know, sustain myself on commissions and um, just have other professional opportunities. And now it's such a different world. (laughs) I'm really grateful for that path that I was able to take. 
My producers, Alan J. Tomasetti and Justine Sebke, have some questions for you. And I'll just start off. We we really feel like the most go-to questions to ask are, what's it like to be a composer and a woman? Or how does being a woman influence your music? And all those questions, right? But there's certainly more to your music than that, right? Are you, are you sick of being asked that all the time? Ooh. <laughs> I am asked that all the time and, you know, I have differing feelings on it. I think as I have thought more and more about it and, um, you know, I remember when I was a freshman and I would hear or read interviews of, of other women composers talking about this and how much, you know, just ideas about gender have changed over time. Um, I noticed actually there was kind of like this generational difference in terms of how people think about, you know, this idea of woman composer and that label. And I I think I remember people like Jennifer Higdon um, saying like that she didn't want to identify as a woman composer. She just wanted to be a composer. She, she, and then she didn't really like, like owning that label at all. But then I remember, um, some younger composers, um, I think even like Kristen Custer, who's at Michigan, um, she wrote this big uh, op-ed in the New York Times that was called, um, it's something about like, I wear the pants or something like that. And it was kind of her journey of really owning this label of woman composer for herself and reclaiming that phrase. And for me, I think um, it was, Actually, I think during my fifth year at Michigan, because I took five years with my double major, I had this really big identity crisis um, that year. And I was really struggling, not just with gender, but with race and, you know, just seeing how I fit in into the music environment as somebody who's like a brown young woman. Um, And I had really felt this pressure that either... Um, my music, everybody wanted it to sound a certain way without really asking me what I thought about that. And especially related to my Indian identity. And um, a lot of people thought, you know, that I should lean in, like my music didn't sound Indian enough or something like that, or that it was, you know, like they wanted it to be somehow more um, like Western classical, like on the other end. Um, and I felt all this pressure. And then I was really struggling with this for a while. And then I came to this conclusion, finally, I had this epiphany um, where I I just learned that all art is related to identity. And, you know, my music is going to be reflective of who I am, regardless of what anybody else says, you know. 
And I, I've learned to reclaim that, you know, just because my identity as an Indian American, as a woman, but also, you know, my, the neighborhood I grew up in, like my family, um, my, the fact where, you know, I went to Michigan or the different schools I went to, or my kind of economic background I had, like all of these things are going to inform all of my perspectives. And of course that's going to influence my music. So when somebody asks like, oh, is your music um, reflective of you being a woman? Then my answer is, yeah, it is. But it's also reflective of all these other things just because I wrote it. Um, and I think me not acknowledging my identity, um, I don't think is helpful. I think I'd rather reclaim that and really own that um, than feeling like, you know, I have to hide it somehow. Very well put. What do you think of then that question of, does it sound like a female composer wrote it? And why we should feel offended when people think about that? Yeah, you know, now that I'm remembering, there was, I, I do remember seeing this thing on Facebook and they had done this thing where they put a bunch of recordings by women composers and then played it for these kids and then asked the kids, what did they think, like who wrote it? What, what are they listening to? And some of them, it was interesting because some of the kids were like, this was definitely written by a woman. <laughs> and these are like <laughs> seven year olds. <laughs> like They already have these, these preconceptions in their head. Um, and some of them were wrong also about who wrote what, um, but you know, it's, I get this question a lot more actually about, um, like my Indian identity. Like a lot of times people will try to find like, what is the Indian element in my music? Oh, and, it's for them. They need an Indian yeah, element. Yeah, for them. And, and they're like, it's almost like, I think like in jazz, we say like a blue note, but like for me, it's like a brown note. Like they're trying to find the brown note in my music. Um, and I always am like, well, you're missing the point of what I'm saying. Like it's always going to inherently be there, but it doesn't mean you have to like think about it on such a surface level of like, oh, this is that one spot. This is the one woman note <laughs> in the piece. You know, it's more of just like, maybe a larger approach to composition, maybe like my sense of empathy is related to my gender in some way, but that doesn't mean you have to necessarily hear it in my music.
Okay, let's flip the coin. Just because you uh, have Indian culture doesn't mean you can't play, for instance, Romantic German, Carl Ronica. Right, exactly. And, you know, every culture, like, I think it's pretty naive for people to think like there's no cultural exchange going on at all. Like that's how music has evolved. And, you know, I, I just am reading a lot about A.R. Rahman, who's this like huge, he's basically like the John Williams of Bollywood. <laughs> um, this really huge film composer. And a lot of his music involves elements from Western genres, like hip hop and, and rock music. And, um, but that has obviously migrated over to India. It's not like they don't experience those things too. And, and vice versa. It's not like, you know, the Beatles had all this Indian influence in their Sgt. Uh, Pepper album. So like all of these cross-cultural influences are going to happen. And I think it's naive to try to just keep div- dividing those lines. Absolutely. How are we going to teach style. I need to go here because it's really imperative. Um, things are going down where uh, the it's a generational pull and people are getting offended um, when, you know, when teacher might say, well, you're not feeling it. And, and that's not me. I would never, ever first tell a student that they're not feeling it. But then when it comes to style, you know, you have to teach a student style. So I would teach you Reinica through different means of Brahms. <laughs> and recordings and tell you articulations and things like that and try and get you as close to it as possible. Not once as a white woman, did I ever question my interpretation of trail of tears because of the study that I did. And in Kobe, it was also an issue. You're American. They say you're American. When I close my eyes and I play the flute from my heart, I am not a gender. I am that style that I'm supposed to be. And so we have to be careful as professors to turn to the student and say, there are stylistic considerations you have to, t- you have to take. Are you ready? And the student can say, yes, you can't then turn around and say, oh, you're not feeling that or you're Indian. Therefore you can't possibly play Brahms, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is a big question also for composers, you know, especially if composers are going to use elements from other genres you know there's a lot of um I'm thinking of like Michael Harrison is this composer who does a lot of work with Indian music and he's um I think he like studied in India he's like really become this amazing scholar who's you know has been playing uh like Hindustani music I think um for like 30 years um and honestly his knowledge base and in terms of just like the rudiments of Hindustani music is probably way beyond my knowledge of it just because, you know, he's really devoted that time to studying it. And, you know, I think for all of these questions, you know, there's this big buzzword nowadays, appropriation. Um, I think like what really needs to just happen is just dialogue, you know, it's it's putting in that effort to learn, um, you know, if it's something like, like Trail of Tears, you know, Um, I mean, and this also would go for Michael Doherty, you know, who wrote it, you know, as a white man. Um, Like if you put in that time to study um, another cultural practice, and then maybe that study involves a lot of dialogue with 
musicians from that culture and and um, make maybe like a collaborative experience like that, then that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't engage that way. I actually think it's really dangerous to say that you can't engage with any other culture besides your own, because I think that's not how the world works. That's not how music evolves. Um, and that's also kind of counterproductive, like you want engagement. Um, uh, but I think it's just putting in that time to really understand a stylistic practice and, um, you know, it's the same for performance as it is for, for composition, that, that same uh, work that has to happen. Okay, so that's a solution because we here at Porter Flute Pod, we want to give lots of attention and light to female and non-binary composers, and we want to live in solutions like dialogue, okay, uh, like being heard. How come women composers aren't being heard? How can we have them be heard more than in programming? Um, playing them in the elementary schools, that's a great idea. Definitely. I, I really believe that um, the most beneficial thing that anyone can do right now is focus on young people, <laughs> like focus on children. And, um, and that means like, what are, what kind of education are young kids having? What kinds of opportunities do they have? And, you know, if you target young girls who are, um, you know, if they want to compose, you know, I, I remember like the New York Phil has done this very young composers program that they had. And um, they had yes. each year, like these young girls, you know, writing for um, New York Phil, <laughs> They're like nine years old. Um, and, you know, those kids have gone on to have, I, I saw one of them is now in this program called Luna Lab, which is a mentoring program for, um, uh, like high school aged uh, uh, women and um, non-binary composers. Um, and like now she's going on to go to music school, like, you know, but a lot of that stemmed from her having that kind of opportunity when she was in elementary school. And I think that that if we can focus on what the future is going to look like, how can we have just more, you know, women and other gender expansive composers, um, you know, then automatically, I think it's going to help change the culture.
All right. Mm-hmm. Some more questions for you, Nina. Who have been your role models? Ooh, <laughs> I've had so many role models. You've been one of my role models. Okay. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I think um, recently uh, some, some of my mentors who I've been consulting with a lot have been uh, Natalie, actually, Natalie Joachim from Foodtronics. Um, she's become such a really important mentor and, and friend in my life. Yay. And yeah, she's been so, and, you know, and I first met her at the masterclass that they did at That's right. Michigan my freshman year where I dressed up as a flight attendant. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Doherty's high and mighty, That's which right. was a piccolo piece. <laughs> so, now that I remember, it's all full circle. Um but and she still remembers that too. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, she's become such an important mentor for me and um, somebody who's been really supportive of my music. You know, she sang a piece of mine with LA Phil recently. Um, you know, and I think also just the way that she's kind of also had a big career shift in terms of, you know, she's composing a lot now and um, she's she's recording albums and she's singing a lot more also and um, becoming this really uh, multifaceted artist and and touring all the time and um, you know I think I've learned a lot from her just to see like what can a really full-fledged artist career look like beyond even just me sitting at home with finale another person is Rina I think Rina Esmail is this this composer um, who's you know, for me, it's like a huge deal when I can find another Indian American composer because there's so few of us. I remember when she met me, she was like, oh my God, Indian American women composer. She's like, you're number five. That's all I know. <laughs> five of us. Wow. I, you got a, the, you got yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like the, <laughs> the ticket and the, um, like the meat counter. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> Number five. Um, but I think I've, I've met more since then. But, you know, she's been a really important influence for me in terms of just because uh, she gets that question all the time also in terms of like, oh, how does your music sound Indian? And, and she's really owned that, actually. You know, she studied in India for a little bit. And, um, you know, she's really become this this cultural bridge you know she involves a lot of Indian performers in her her music and her and I would say also Gabby Frank um Gabrielina Frank has been oh for sure yeah she's also from Michigan you know she's Mm -hmm. just been such a good human and created this wonderful network through her um, academy that she's running and being such a supportive figure for young composers and um does a lot of activism work around the climate um and she's just being such a good human so she has an academy do you think that's a, a, a good way as my uh, producers say to unlearn our internalized misogyny in music she has been amazing you know I think she had a really hard time and she's talked openly about this um about her time in the academy you know in in universities and academia. And um, I think her creating this academy, I mean, she has said like universities have 
often approached her for a faculty job and she always would say no just because she was so traumatized during her time in academia just as a student yeah and and so she felt like this academy was her way to give back and and have that teaching experience but in her own way that she could set her own terms and really create this nurturing environment and really be protective and supportive for her students so um, you know, she always will help young women and non-binary um, students. She always will, she set up mentorship funds for students of color. Um, you know, she started these climate initiatives where um, composers can learn a lot about climate change and they go through this, these big workshops and um, talk about strategies of like going forward, how can we um, address our own effect on the environment and sustainability and through personal choices. And yeah, she's just been such a good person. And I think, you know, that academy she started is a really concrete way to change things. Absolutely. What a solution. Definitely. Definitely. Such a good person. Finally, is your advice to women and non-binary composers and all musicians trying to find a space in a male-dominant field? Yeah, I think creating our own networks, honestly. You know, I've kind of thought about this a lot um, in terms of also just from a racial diversity standpoint, you know, like the more spaces that I can find where that are you know, led by women um, or led by um, people of color, like I tend to feel most liberated in those spaces rather than me always focusing on trying to do damage control in other spaces. And like, those are the spaces I feel like I can express myself and and take risks in my music and really try new things and, and speak up about ways that I'm struggling and the field and um and they always like really support each other so I have found that the most helpful thing for me is just creating those networks and finding like a community of of peers that 
are going through the same things that I'm going through and we can vent together, we can change things together. And um, it feels, it's almost like a therapy group, <laughs> honestly. Um, I think that's really important. Support is very important. Not being siloed is also important. Um, so what happens in my coaching and business is you pick a market that you know you can speak to, that you have that vocabulary, and then you go out, outside of that. But once you have your network, you can go out. You can't just go drop yourself in the ocean and think you're going to solve this issue or any of the grave issues right now. We, you're right. We have to get with our networks and have a louder voice. Again, we're not siloing ourselves. We're actually becoming stronger with others. Right. You're developing a coalition, you know, a coalition of support that can support your voice. Yeah. Well, Nina, (laughs) I was so excited that you agreed to come on to talk to me. And I, as your mentor, your former mentor was so concerned that you would have burnout about these topics. (laughs) I hope, I hope you're okay. (laughs) <laughs> I am okay. I mean, it's definitely valid. I, I very much appreciate you checking in on me. I think it's a really important question. And, you know, I think especially in this current zeitgeist, you know, everybody is so focused on trauma right now. Everybody's so focused on um, really like <laughs> pain, social pain. And, you know, I feel like so many of my interviews that I had had, you know, like when the New York Times interviewed me, it was for <laughs> bad things like this. Like, what is it like being an Asian American composer? And this, like, when all those, um, uh, like all that violence was going on against um, Asian people. Yeah. And, you know, it was always like really trauma-based and, um, you know, so I think it's important to have these conversations, but also make sp- space for joy and, um, you know, other happier <laughs> emotions. Exactly. And have, so, you know, we're, we're all real people and we all have so many different things we're going through and we all have our own, you know, needs and wants and, and experiences of joy that we want to feel. So exactly. Mm-hmm. I think part of the solution is also, I learned through a lot of people in mourning during the last two years is don't compare. Definitely. You know, we all have our own experiences that we're feeling and we don't always know what other people are going through. And I think having that empathy and just space for learning, you know, we're all learning and growing. I think that's so important. So in a way in this podcast, I've said, Nina, because you are this and that I have to ask you this and that question by no means Do I ever want to put you on a hot seat that you're not comfortable with? So thank you from the bottom of my heart for having such a frank conversation based on questions from my producer and from me as someone who loves you so much. Um, I can't let you go without asking, are you practicing the flute at all? (laughs) I am, you know, I actually, it's funny because more recently I've been doing more recording. Like I'll record myself on the flute. I just did a a piece for, um, this group Chemia Ensemble, which actually started oh, yeah. in Michigan. Yeah. And um, that piece had electronics in it. And in the electronics, I recorded a lot of flute sounds and then kind of processed them in, in this fun way. And um, so I think I'm developing a, 
a new relationship to the flute through like my relation with the flute, but in this processed electronic way. And I'm learning all these new capabilities that I didn't realize the flute could have. That's right. Keep practicing, please, because you're very, very good. (laughs) I'm so honored. It means so much coming from you. (laughs) Thanks for being on Porter Flute Pod. Thanks so much for having me. So good to see you. I'm so glad we had this conversation with Nina. I know that I've learned so much from these lessons and solutions. I can take them into my space of work and life. Join us next time on Porter Flute Pod when I tell you all about my new company, Anatomy of Sound and AOS Wellness. I'll introduce you to my breathing buddy. You can find more about Nina Shaker at ninashaker.com. That's N-I-N-A-S-H-E-K-H-A-R. You can find more about me at amyporter.com or porterflute.com. And on social media, I'm Porterflute. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you. <laughs>